one of the things that God always is telling us is how much we are unable to see. Over and over again, trying to explain to us our need to be able to see. That is something that has been certainly true uh, in the books of First and Second Kings, and we have observed how Israel has been not able to see God properly. They don't see their relation with, with God properly. The kings of Israel do not see God properly. God has sent Elijah and Elisha both in an effort to help the people and the king to see God properly. And yet we have seen that Elijah as well as Elisha has been rejected by the king as well as uh, the people of Israel. And now we come to uh, yet another picture of what Israel needs in 2 Kings chapter 6. Uh, And it encounters yet another, what I think we would call a strange miracle. Some would say it seems to be a mundane miracle. And yet, uh, as we look at this miracle, it has an important meaning to what God was trying to symbolize for Israel's future. And that is always true of any miracle, is Every miracle is, is making a statement about not only who God is, but what he has come to do. And, and so Elisha continues to work these powerful miracles. And here is one that on the surface you would read it and go, I don't get it. And I hope by the end of the chapter tonight we'll go, I get it. I understand why a miracle like this would be performed. Second Kings chapter 6, and notice then verse 1. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan and each of us get a log and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, Go. Then one of them said, Be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. And so he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water. And he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, Where did it fall? And when he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there. And he made the iron float. And he said, Take it up. And so he reached out his hand and took it. The implications are clear. You read a miracle like that and you wonder, well, well, what is going on? Why is a miracle like that here? Here, some poor guy loses the axe head and Elisha is there to save the day. And is, are these just random miracles or is something going on? Um, it is important to, to note the way the text brings out. This is not his and uh, this would have put him into debt to whoever the person was that owned this axe. But... There is something more certainly going on. And one of the things that I think is important to observe about Elisha is Elisha's ministry has been bound by a number of water miracles up to this point. You might remember in chapter 2 that we looked at a number of weeks ago that when Elisha comes to Jericho, a city that's been cursed by Joshua that was to never exist or be built again, that he comes to Jericho and there is this uh, healing of the waters that occurs, a picture of the reversing of the curse that God was willing to do for Jericho and for, for the people. In chapter 4, you saw that Elisha then removes death from this pot as they gather all kinds of gourds and herbs and throw it into a pot. So it turns out to be poisonous. 
And then you have Elisha there healing uh, those waters and then healing this stew. We noted in chapter 5, we spent a morning and an evening with the healing of Naaman, who was to dip in the Jordan seven times. You're noting this repetition of healing. And in each of these cases, what Elisha keeps doing with his miracles is showing his ability to reverse conditions and to restore, you know, res- restoring the waters of Jericho, we're restoring the stew, we're restoring the skin of Naaman, and now we are restoring the axe head. And the point is not that these are seemingly strange, mundane, insignificant miracles all cobbled together by Elisha with no particular purpose, but this is setting up that God is amazingly describing that there is still potential in Israel's future. That there still can be healing. There can still be the reversal of their condition. There can still be restoration as bad as things have been. Even with the reign of Ahab and all that he has done in his wickedness. And the sins of his sons are, are no better as we have been observing in Second Kings. That it isn't that all hope is lost, but Elisha is there. And each of these miracles being performed is trying to get Israel to see that they can have restoration. Now, I want you to hold that idea as we go through what happens next. And we'll bring in this miracle symbolism and it will apply to really where the rest of this scene goes. Chapter 6. Verse 8, once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants saying, at such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware that you do not pass this place for the Syrians are going down there. Now, just stop there for a minute and think about We noted in chapter 5 that God is on the side of the Syrians. He has been with Naaman, giving him victories. All of these are pictures of God's judgment against Israel for their wickedness. That's why the Syrians are able to do these raids, capture cities, capture people. The same thing seems to be happening here now in chapter 6. But amazingly, verse 9, the man of God, which is Elisha, sends word to the king of Israel... And tells him, don't go to that particular location because the Syrians are encamped there. Now notice then verse 10. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. I read that and my my jaw is on the ground that. Even in the wickedness of Israel, God is sending messages through Elisha to warn the king of Israel about the Syrian encampments. Here are these still these small pictures of hope of God trying to break through to the king of Israel through Elisha. I'm going to tell you where the Syrians are. I will tell you about their encampments. Not once, not twice. It says there in verse 10. Elisha warned him many times about these kinds of things. Verse 11, it gets so bad. Verse 11 says the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, will you not show me who is of us 
who is for the king of Israel. In essence, clearly somebody is a spy around here. Uh, and there's no way for the king of Israel to know everywhere we're camped out. Why does this keep happening? There is a traitor in our midst, and that's why he's able to know. But look at this response in verse 12. One of his servants said, none, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you are to speak, that you speak in your bedroom. So a Syrian servant has an awareness of Elisha to such a degree that he's able to tell the king of Syria, nobody's a traitor here. They've got a man of God over there, and he's telling the king all of your plans that you make in your own bedroom that nobody else would know. Now, you would hope the king of Syria would be amazed by that. But verse 13 says, go and see where he is that I may send and seize him. Now, if you've been tracking Second Kings, seizing men of God does not play well with God. That is not a good plan that when you figure out somebody's a man of God, you don't try to get him. You had Isaiah trying to figure that out, in fact, in chapter 1 to Elijah. And now the Syrian king, rather than having his jaw dropped and going, wow, he must really be a man of God that he knows my plans that I make in my bedroom that nobody else would know about, but he's fully aware of it. Let me go meet this guy. He says, I want to kill that guy. Let's seize him. And so he's found then in verse 13 that Elisha is in Dothan. And so in verse 14, the king sends horses chariots, a great army. And they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early in the morning and went out, behold, the army with horses and chariots was all around the city. Again, this is reflecting the ease by which Syria is able to attack Israel. Just They just come with horses, chariots, armies, just surround the city. The, man, the servant of the man of God wakes up and looks and he just sees the city is surrounded. And so verse 15, he says to his master, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Verse 16, he said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now at that moment, you would say, Elisha, you're crazy. <laughs> they have come with chariots. They have come with armies and a mass force to surround the city. And Elisha says, don't be afraid. There's more with us than with them. In verse 17, Elisha prays and says, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Just imagine that scene, praying to God, I will just show him what I'm able to understand. And he is, opens his eyes and looks, horses, chariots of fire just strewn about the countryside all around. And it says in verse 18, so when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, please strike this people with blindness. And so he struck them with blindness 
in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. So here we have this reversal of sight happening. Here is Elisha's servant. He can't see everyone that is on God's side. And Elisha prays, let him see. Let him see all who is with us. And then as the Syrians, you can imagine they're ready to attack. They've got chariots and armies. And the reverse happens where Elisha prays to God, I want you to blind the whole army. Now, pretending that you didn't know how this all plays out, what would you think would be the outcome of this? We're going to blind the whole Syrian army out there who's come to attack the Israelites and capture the man of God and seize him. You might be surprised. Verse 19. And Elisha said to him, he goes out to the armies. Elisha says to him, this is not the way and this is not the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led him to Samaria. Now remember Samaria, that is the capital city of Israel. So right to the heart of Israel itself. So they go from Dothan all the way to Samaria. Verse 20. And as they, as soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And so the Lord opened their eyes and they saw and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. You know, that just had to be a shock. <laughs> we thought we were surrounding the town of Dothan just to get Elisha. Now we're in the very capital of Israel where the king is, where the armies are stationed. And they open their eyes. There they are. Verse 21. And as soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, my father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? <laughs> God has brought them right into our lap. Surely the response is to strike them down and have a great victory over Syria. Verse 21. You have Elisha answering, you shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So the king of Israel prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids to the land of Israel. That was probably one of the biggest blindside endings of how you would expect that to have gone. Oh, well, should we take them captive and kill them? No, no. Uh, King of Israel, probably Jehoram. I want you to give them just a great feast. Just have them come on in and sit down. And we are going to have a meal together. And then we're going to send them right back to their master. And that's going to change everything. This is a strange and a fascinating picture of what God is trying to picture about what he's come to do. And then we're going to talk now over these last few minutes that we have about the big ideas of what God is teaching here in this chapter. And I think there are three things that ultimately God wants us to be able to see. Number one. The big thing that rises up out of the page that can be just so striking to us is that God is showing that he wants us to see the unseen protection of God. It is fun to think about how often the scriptures want you to see the invisible, to see the unseen. 
And here is that same thing happening is that God is trying to say to us, I want you to see the way things really are. Verse 16 is, is, is Elisha praying that I want him to not be afraid anymore. You don't have anything to worry about. Don't be afraid. Open his eyes so that he is able to see what is really going on out there. To be able to see that those who are with God are far more than those who were with the Syrians. You know, there are so many times where God over and over again is telling us and encouraging us and saying to us, you don't need to be afraid because I'm with you. You don't need to be afraid. I'm not going to forsake you. You don't need to be afraid. I'm right there with you. And what a moment that happens here in a, in a very visible way to open the eyes of the servant so that for a moment he is able to see the invisible forces of God who have come in in that moment. It almost reminds you of uh, the days of the prophet Balaam where the donkey is able to see what Balaam is unable to see. And here is this moment where now the servant of God is able to truly see and this is why Elisha's not going to panic is because he understands that God is with him and that God is, is, is not going to leave him. And so how many times the scriptures want us to understand that? In fact, you have the writer of Hebrews making the point to each and every one of us that you have come to Mount Zion and you have come to innumerable angels and festal gathering, that you have come to the assembly of the firstborn that, that are enrolled in heaven. You have come to the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. You've come to Jesus, this big long list of, I want you to see what you've come to. I want you to see what you belong to. I want you to see what this kingdom looks like. And that's a very powerful picture because it is easy for us to kind of look around at the world and go, well, where is the kingdom of God? I mean, it just looks like evil is winning and, you know, God's on vacation and there's hardly any righteous and what's going on. And here's God saying, you're just not seeing. <laughs> you're not seeing what you've come to. You're not seeing the power of the kingdom of God. You're not seeing that you've come to innumerable angels or to the assembly of the firstborn or to the judge of all or to the spirits of those who've been, who are righteous, who've been made perfect to see the unseen. And ultimately, I believe the whole idea of what God wants us to grasp with that is that our faith will overpower our fears only when we do that. When we look beyond the physical and recognize what God is doing is showing I am in control and I have power at disposal and I have my kingdom and I have my forces and you don't need to worry. And that is what we put our hope and our trust in. Fear comes about when we only look at the scene, when we only look at what is right in front of us. That's when we panic. And God is always asking us, I want you to see the unseen. I want you to see God and see what you've come to, because only then can faith overpower the fears that we often have by the things that we see in this world. And so that's what you see pictured here, what was being offered to Israel, what Israel could have enjoyed if they would simply submit to him. 
And that leads to the second picture as this scene plays out is that God wants us to see this peace and this feast that is given to those who are, whose eyes are opened. Did anybody really think that was going to be the ending? Here's what we will do. We will take the Syrian army that has come to destroy Israel, capture the man of God. We're going to take him to Samaria and we're going to have the king of Israel Sit them all down for a feast to enjoy food and drink. And then when they're done eating, we're just going to send them back on their way. It is an amazing picture, especially when you consider that these are Gentiles and the enemies of Israel. And then God is having a feast prepared for them. That there is imagery of opportunity for Syria and a Syrian army, a Gentile army. The enemies of God to no longer be blind, but now to truly see what is being offered to them. And I think it is not without exception that Jesus told so many parables like that. You might remember one in particular that's recorded in Luke 14, where Jesus speaks in this parable about the master giving a great feast. And all those who were invited all begin to make excuses one by one why they would not come to the feast. And so the master then gives the instructions. I want you to bring in the poor and the maimed and the blind and the lame. And the response of the servant is, we've already done that. And so then the master says, then go to the hedges and go to the side roads and the side streets. And I want this place full to come in and enjoy my feast. But he makes the point that those who were invited would not participate in that feast. There is an amazing reversal happening here where Israel is unable to understand the feast that is before them, how they could open their eyes and see what God is trying to do for Israel and restoring them and reversing their condition so that they could truly enjoy the blessings of God. The king of Israel's rejected that. Israel's rejecting that. But here is this image where the Syrians accept it. Their eyes are opened. They enjoy the feast that's given to them and the ending might be the most perplexing and they go back to Syria and they never will attack Israel again. It's almost as if they've been won over, that God has won them over in the feast and they understand what God has done for them, that they are truly able to see and are no longer blind. And which leads them to the big point and really to the third point where we'll spend the majority of our time is in this chapter, then how are we supposed to have this kind of sight? How are we supposed to see? And one of the things that is another thread that happens through the scriptures, and it's how I introduced the lesson, is that God seems to always be in the business of blinding people who think they see And giving sight to people who understand they're blind. It's an interesting way God likes to operate with that. He's over and over again saying, here's my work that I'm accomplishing. Everybody who thinks that they can clearly see, they don't see at all. And everybody who realizes how blind they are, 
God is going to give them sight. You might remember Jesus giving that picture in a number of places. One of them is in Matthew chapter 13. You have the disciples coming to Jesus and they're asking the question, why do you always tell people parables? Why are you always telling these stories? Especially you tell the story and you never give the answer. You never give the explanation. He always drops a parable and then walks off. Why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus gives this answer. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see. And hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart is grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, with their eyes they have closed. Thus they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. Jesus says, I tell parables because people who think they've got it, people who think they see, are just going to keep not seeing. And it's only the people who will have an awareness of their blindness, who understand with their heart, hear with their ears, then only then, he said, they would turn and I would heal them. It's a fascinating answer because you would almost expect the answer to be, well, what I'm doing is trying to dumb it down with the story and that way they will understand and then I could heal them. But no, the point is that the stories that he tells has the intention of, Those who are darkened in their understanding are just going to stay darkened. Those who are blind are just going to stay blind. It's only the people like the disciples who will come up to Jesus and say, hey, what did that mean? They understood they couldn't see. They understood that they didn't have perception. And so they'd come up to Jesus a little later and say, what that parable mean? I'm not understanding. This is all the more starkly described by Jesus at the end of John 9. It'd be fun to do all of John 9 for this lesson. Certainly no time for that. But you might remember this is our instance of a man who's born blind, who is then given sight. And it becomes a whole illustration for Israel, just as this scene in Elisha's day is a whole scene for Israel in the same way. Because the Pharisees are hearing Jesus talking and they say to them, Say to him, are we also blind? Are you trying to say that we don't see? And Jesus' answer is, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. See, Jesus is in the business of trying to get people who understand they are blind. Only they will be the ones who will turn and be healed. Only they will be able to enjoy this. But those who think they see. No, they're not going to be able to see. And I hope that we can see that's what's happening here. We have seen Elisha. It's in a very subtle statement that's made there in verses 9 through 11. But we are told that Elisha is repeatedly warning the king of Israel about the Syrian encampments trying to get the king to see. Do you see that God is in control? Do you see that Elisha is the man of God? Do you see that you should humble yourself before him and listen to him? No. 
We were already told earlier in the book Jehoram's outcome. He's considered a wicked king. He is a touch better than Ahab, we are told. He does take care of a Baal pillar. But other than that, he follows on the same track of wickedness. And even though the son of Ahab walked in the ways of his father, God was still trying to get Israel to see. And not only was he trying to get Israel to see that God had come and he was even trying to get the Gentiles to see. To see who God is. To see that God offers restoration. That he offers healing. That he offers the reversal of condition if they would simply submit to God. You might remember that the Apostle Paul had that very same prayer for the Christians in Ephesus. As he wrote to them, he said, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you catch that imagery of able to see. I want your heart to perceive. I want your eyes to truly see with the eyes of your heart enlightened. You may know what is the hope to which you have been called. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe according to the working of his great power? Just get the sense of that picture. As you come to know God, you are able to see. Your eyes are being opened. Your heart is being opened. And as your eyes and your heart are opening, he says, I want you to know, I want you to see the hope to which you've been called. I want you to know and see the riches of his glorious inheritance. I want you to know and see the immeasurable greatness of his power for us. You realize those are all invisible qualities. You are not able to sit here and go, well, I see the riches of his glorious inheritance. They're stacked right here. No, you have to have eyes like we're talking about here in this chapter. The ability to see the unseen, to see what God is offering. And it is beyond what is physical and is beyond what physical sight can do. And this is what Paul is saying. It is my prayer that you would know God and see all that he has to offer you. Now, here's the problem. And it's a really big problem. Everyone thinks they can see. And that is very true, especially in our culture right now. Everybody can see. Everybody understands. No one is humble enough to listen to anybody else. I know that I see. I know that I don't need to listen to anybody else or anything else. And that's the essence of blindness. That's the essence of darkness. If no one can come into our lives and tell us about our blindness, we are blind. That was the problem Jesus was having. He's walking around telling people, you can't see. And they're saying, are you saying we're blind? Jesus going, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly the problem. You think you can see and you can't. And because you can't, 
your guilt remains. And I think it is so important for us to consider is that if you think you're seeing everything properly, God says you're not seeing anything properly. And that sounds so backward to us. But that's exactly how it works. God's offer is for everyone to see. But if you think you can see without him, you can't see at all. You're unable to see what God is truly offering. You're unable to see what God is doing. And friends, we just cannot be surprised when others think we're crazy. For the way we look at the world and the way we look at God and the way we do things and think, well, you're just crazy. Yeah. That's going to happen. Because you either see clearly through the lens of Christ or you're blinded by the prince of this world. There's there's no alternative. And unfortunately, what happens is so then we just get into like social media arguments. If I can come up with the cutest meme, that'll change their mind. They're blind. They're not going to see. And so often the scriptures is trying to say only God can open hearts and open eyes. Only God is able to do that. Only God is able to reach in and do that work. Only he has that power. It is only when we see God properly, only when we are truly looking at him and we humble ourselves before God and realize I don't see life right. And the only way to look at life properly is through the lens of Jesus. Only then will we have the eyes of our heart enlightened. We try to look at it through the lens of this world. The lens of our culture, the lens that the world says is wisdom. We aren't going to be able to see properly. And it's so important that we recognize that we are only going to be able to see as we come to know the Lord. We need to be far more worried about if our eyes are actually opened like we think they are. Because I said at the beginning, what's the problem? Everybody can see. Don't tell me I can't see. I can see. The humility and poverty of spirit that God wants is the person that comes to God and says, I really don't know if I'm seeing right. We all think we see. We all think we've got it figured out. We've got the worldview just got it. Nobody doesn't live life just going, oh, no, I'm an idiot. I have no idea. We all think we see. But will we have the humility to wonder, well, maybe I don't see. And there's only one way to know if we are truly seeing life, seeing God and seeing one another properly. And that is because we come to the Lord And we are receiving that spirit of wisdom and revelation that is spoken there in Ephesians chapter 1. And as we come to know him, the eyes of our heart are being enlightened. Do we see the feast that God has put in front of us? Do we see the hope that has been given to us? Do we see the riches of his glory? Do we see the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us? Do we see ultimately what God is offering, that he is here for us, he is available to us? If we will only come to him and say, I can't see. 
And the whole of Israel's problem here is they can't see this. They can't see their problem. And amazingly, God would allow the Syrians to see and get it. But Israel can't get it. And God is saying, you might be that axe head that's floated down or sunk down to the bottom of the river. But if you come to me, there's restoration and reversal of condition. You can truly understand and truly see. I don't know that we admit it in ourselves, but have you ever said this within your heart? Because we would never say this out loud. I say tongue in cheek. Where a Christian has said something and you thought, how could a Christian ever say something like that? How could a Christian ever think like that? We can be blown away. We'd be like, that's just. Well, what's happened? We think we see. but we don't see it all. It's amazing how we are so able to observe the blindness of others and do not see our own blinded hearts. We need to be far more concerned about are we seeing properly? Are we coming to know God so that the eyes of our heart can be opened so that we can see the power of God in our life? the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us, the riches of his glorious inheritance, and truly see the hope to which we have been called. If you come to God, you can enjoy a faith that stands above fear. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, it is, it is just too easy to think that we have a full understanding and that we have things all figured out and that we see so properly. Lord, sometimes we just simply lose our humility and fail to bow our knees to you and recognize that you are the giver of sight. God, first I would pray for us that forgive us for the times where we have lacked humility, where in our arrogance that we declared how rightly we see and failed to submit to you and bow our knee to you and realize how little we see at all. So, Lord, forgive us, and we pray that we would come to a far greater knowledge of you and that as we come to know you more and more, that you would open our hearts more and more and give us greater spiritual vision. Help us to see you more clearly. Help us to see your kingdom more clearly. Help us to see this culture and this world more clearly. Help us to see the hope that we have more clearly, the riches that you have promised to us more clearly. Lord, help us to see the unseen. 
Help us to see that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Help us to see that we are surrounded by innumerable angels, that we have come to a glorious kingdom. Help us to see all these things. Lord, we know that our culture and our world lives in a time of darkness, and we pray that you would move hearts and open eyes and open hearts so that they would see you more clearly. So many have closed their eyes and closed their ears and closed their hearts to you in this world. Lord, we pray that we could be instruments of sight, that you would use our words and use our lives in a way so that eyes could be opened in this world. Help us to see you clearly so that we can help others see clearly. Help us to be the light to the nations that you have called us to be so that we can bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Lord, thank you for your son. It's only through him that we are able to have any sight at all. We are amazed at your love for us. We are amazed at your love for the world. Help us to have that same vision of the world that you have, that you want all to come to see. And may we have hearts and may we have opportunity May we have a great desire to show people what it means to see you clearly. Help us in these efforts, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. It's an amazing picture of what Elisha is trying to show. And let us end by asking, can you see? Do you see clearly what God is offering to you? Do you see life clearly? Do you come to him in the way that he wants you to? Come to him with all of your heart, to come to him believing, coming to him in submission with a humble heart, giving your life to him that you will do whatever he says to do and go wherever he will go. We certainly want to give you that opportunity to turn away from your sins tonight, be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. If we can help you in any way, one of the reasons we're here is to help each other see, to really come to one another and say, I don't see right. And I need your help. And you need mine. May we come together in that very effort. Can we help you in any way? Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?